Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey there, Cynical listeners. We are very excited to bring you today a new podcast that I'm co-producing with our friends at GGV Capital. GGV is a Sand Hill Road VC with a long history of very successful investing in China. The podcast is called 996, and you'll understand why shortly. It's hosted by Hans Tung, a partner at GGV and a super knowledgeable technologist himself, and by Zara Zhang, who is an investment analyst at the firm and a former tech reporter who is very, very smart. The show is going to be out every other week, but this week we are launching the first four episodes. First up is Jerry Yang, co-founder and former CEO at Yahoo, who has been actively involved in the China tech scene for a very long time. He, of course, was the person who engineered the deal with Alibaba. It's an extraordinary interview, and whether you are a techie yourself, or an entrepreneur, or a China watcher, or an investor, you're going to get a lot out of this one, I promise. And stay tuned for more. We've got Liu Jun, who headed strategy for Uber in China and is now a senior VP at ByteDance, the company that produces the AI-powered news provider Toutiao. We've got the AI maven Andrew Eng, who used to be at Baidu, and the eminence grise of the China tech world, the legendary Kaifu Li. Enjoy the podcast, and if you like it, please subscribe. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Beijing. We will be arriving at the Hi there. Welcome to the 996 podcast, brought to you by GGB Capital and co-produced by the Seneca Podcast. On this show, we interview movers and shakers of China's tech industry, as well as tech leaders who have a U.S.-China cross-border perspective. My name is Hans Tong. I'm a managing partner at GGV Capital and have been working at startups and investing in them in both the U.S. and China for the past 20 years. My name is Zara Zhang. I'm an investment analyst at GGV Capital and a former journalist. Why is this show called 996? 996 is the work schedule that many Chinese founders have organically adopted. That is, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. To us, 996 captures the intensity, drive, and speed of Chinese internet companies, many of which are moving faster than even their American counterparts. On the show today, we have Jerry Yan, the co-founder and former CEO of Yahoo and the founding partner of Ame Cloud Ventures, which focuses on seed to later stage companies building infrastructure and value chains around data. Jerry was a pioneer in the consumer internet industry, an icon of Silicon Valley, and has been an inspiration to both engineers and entrepreneurs worldwide. Jerry also orchestrated one of the most famous and lucrative deals in tech history anywhere in the world. In 2005, he arranged for Yahoo to invest $1 billion in cash plus the asset of Yahoo China in exchange for a 40% stake in a small but fast-growing Chinese company by the name of Alibaba, which happened to be a GGV portfolio already back then. The post-money valuation of the deal was for $5 billion. The deal was considered by many as being expensive and risky. 
It was also the largest foreign investment ever made in Chinese tech industry. Today, 12 years later, Alibaba is worth close to $500 billion or half a trillion and for a return of 100x in 10 years for Yahoo. Jared remains active on the U.S.-China cross-border technology scene. He's on the board of Alibaba and Lenovo, speaks frequently at various events, and advises U.S. tech companies looking to go to China, as well as Chinese tech companies trying to expand into the U.S. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a great way to kick off 2018. Yeah, glad to have you <laughs> here. Thank you for coming. You first met Jack uh, during your first visit to China in 1997. Let's uh, go back and chat about that. Uh, context. He was a um, government official assigned to you to be a translator and take you around on the Great Wall. At that time, what was your impression of him? And back then, did you have any inkling at all he was going to do something big over the next uh, few decades? Back then, you were the king of internet. Uh, Yahoo was the highest valued internet company in the entire world. What struck you about China back then? Well, you know, I was born and raised in Taiwan, as you well know, Hans. And um, right. and since I came to the U.S., I never went back to Asia very often. And so being able to go back to China for the first time in 1997 was a thrill. And, you know, meeting Jack then was uh, very interesting because I was immediately struck by how inquisitive and how curious he was about the Internet. And the Internet was not very big in, in China no, in 1997. Jack spoke great English. He never spent time outside of China, so he learned it in China, which was also very unusual back then. But it was clear that he was an entrepreneur at heart, even from 1997. Now, of course, I had no idea what he would go on to do. He may not have had any idea what he was going to go on to do. Right. And I think so, China had, what, like 7 million internet users back then? It was then? very, very small. Very and small. The internet connections were, were, terrible. were terrible. And um, and so this was very much an early days uh, kind of a... Time. So I, I would say that um, um, over time, obviously, um, the country embraced the internet. But at that time, it was really kind of early days in the backwaters. Did you guys talk about the internet at all? Yeah, he was very inquisitive. He asked about the web. He asked about um, the internet. And he asked about all the information part of it. I think he had some experience building directories or, or things like that for telecommunication, yellow, yellow pages. Yeah. So, um, so he was very knowledgeable about a lot of aspects of what Yahoo was back then, which was a, a large directory and a search engine. So we did talk a lot about that. And he clearly was um, not your typical government person. Right. Back then, all throughout Asia, people were trying to figure out what internet is, what internet meant. And I think that at that time, the market leaders in Taiwan, China, or Hong Kong, Japan, were just starting. What was your impression of Asia's potential for internet market at that time? Well, in 1997, when I visited China and, and first met Jack, this was on the heels of the previous year, 1996, started Yahoo Japan right. with SoftBank and, and Masayoshi Son. So, right. so Masa, as he is now, is very much a visionary. He pushes and wants to be 10 and 20 years ahead of where the trend is. Right. And he saw the opportunity. He was one of our first investors in Yahoo right. in the late stage, right before we went public. But also, his condition was to start Yahoo in Japan. And I think... We were in no position uh, back then. <laughs> we were a young company. I think we had less than 50 people, right. and we were too busy in the U.S. But he was so persistent and forceful, as Masa is still today, 
that we agreed to launch Yahoo Japan in probably some sort of a record time. He supplied all the labor. He put some of his best executive. He even put his younger brother, Taizo, right. um, as one of our lead surfers. So we had launched Yahoo Japan the previous year, and it was difficult to get it launched. Right. But then we saw the early successes of having been first to market there. And so to your question, I think there is this very palpable energy around Asia, not only in Japan, but in Korea. Korea. Exactly. Korea was really just beginning to take off. And then obviously China wasn't far behind. Right. Since Yahoo Japan worked out so well over time, were you thinking of doing something similar, even as early as then for other parts of Asia? Yeah, we try to do the same model elsewhere. We try to do Yahoo Korea. It did not work out as well. And I think there were some very strong incumbent competitors in Korea that has turned out to be, you know, huge. Right. Like Dom. Uh, Dom and Naver and, yeah, and those guys. And in China, we knew we had to plant a flag early and try to get some things going. But also ultimately, we needed partners to survive in China, given not only the market, which is usually the driving factor, but in China, you also have the government and um, the regulatory side of it that made it very unique. Correct. As you know, it's not easy for a U.S. tech company to operate in China. What do you think are some of the most common challenges faced by U.S. companies when they try to go to China? Well, I think um, the number one is really understanding um, what is the goal and how do you succeed? What do you, how do you define success? And, um, uh, and part of the early days of the internet in China, you know, the late nineties and early two thousands, the challenge were really that the regulatory side was just also growing up. So they were trying to figure out how to regulate the internet industry at the same time all these companies were coming up. So some companies were, um, uh, less regulated than others and right. um uh and, and I think now there's a more or less um uh more clear roadmap for for companies that want to be in China um and I think as the last 20 years have shown the government also has been um they they've been open on some ways and closed in other ways mm-hmm. about letting companies in and I think part of it is having partners or having investors maybe like ggb yourselves who understands sort of the um the 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 highs and lows or the rise and fall of different um sensibilities within Mm -hmm. the chinese culture and the chinese government on the topic of local partners how do you pick a local partner that fits your company culture and how do you make sure that they're actually empowered yeah that's a really good question zara i i i think um we were very lucky in Japan uh, to have um, SoftBank as our local partner who put all of their weight behind us. Uh, Japan is notoriously difficult as a market. Right. And, um, uh, and for us to have had Masa's um, support and, um, and backing was, was really critical. But, but it was also one where we, um, you know, he, he had, majority of equity in, in Yahoo Japan. So it was a, it was a case where he had um, more of the stake of the company for us to to in order for us to be successful there. Um, in other places, I think it just depends. It, it really, um, if you can find a great local um, team and local manager, a lot of times um, that's the key ingredient, whether you find a partner or not. Um, uh, and it depends on kind of company because if it's a large-ish company and um, and there isn't so much local innovation or 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 product 
localization that's required. Um, that's one formula, and, and you, we've seen a lot of U.S. companies that basically use um, the market as more of a sales and marketing market, whereas a lot of our companies today, especially our venture companies and portfolio companies, um, do require not only product rollout, but also um, some indigenous localization or innovation mm-hmm. that needs to happen. And there you need more talented executive teams than just uh, your standard sales and marketing executives. So it really kind of depends on it, but ultimately it comes down to running the business. You know, people get stuck on running, uh, finding equity partners or government partners or capital, you know, but ultimately it's who's running the business day to day on the ground and growing the marketplace. And um, our successful examples tend to be people who um, are great getting the product out into the market that fits the Chinese market. And I think that's a, that's a secret sauce that's hard to come by. And, and um, it, it helps to have other backing and other capital partners, but usually it's, it's much more about the people on the ground. Right. You had a, a few attempts at this in China. Yes. Um, uh, obviously, the most recent one, uh, the final one, worked out extremely well. Yeah. Um, it's the best thing one could argue that Yahoo ever did um, after initial inception. Um, but um, before that, for example, you worked with uh, Zhou Hongyi of 371. Yes, right. Extremely controversial figure who now runs uh, Qihu 360. Yeah. Um, how did you decide to pick him in the first place over someone like a Robin Lee or or uh, or anyone else in China and then um, was uh, insisting on having a 100% ownership via acquisition, the right strategy, or uh, what you did the second time with Jack, a partial but material stake, uh, would that be a better strategy for a U.S. company looking at expanding to China in the internet space? Well, we realized that in China that we needed a local operating person. As I said, being in China running a product set without local executive team was very, very difficult. And this was still before the regulatory side was clear about what Yahoo is allowed to do or what is not allowed to do. So we did acquire 3721 and, and really used the acquisition to buy the management team, which is Zhou Hongyi and, and his team. Hongyi is, as you know, he's very scrappy. He's bold. He's got the... Doesn't play by the Western rules. Well, he doesn't really... He, he really just sees himself as a true maverick. And especially, you know, this is almost 20 years ago, he was right. really a maverick. Right. And so I would say that my experience with him has been challenged from the standpoint of him being a subsidiary within a, a large U.S. company at the right. time. But his approach to the Chinese market, his sort of ability to kind of come up with things that really can disrupt the market, to this day he has done that. I, I actually learned a lot from him. And, you know, our episode in China... The challenge was, um, and is now kind of a, a seminal moment, if you will, was um, meeting with the government officials and and them in not uh, not so uncertain terms, saying that you know Yahoo really He's shouldn't shouldn't be operating in China and uh, uh, or even uh, what was the word they said uh, that um, you know we we have this regulation that's coming up next year that uh, will make what you guys are doing illegal and of course it's a regulation i think that never got passed but you kind of get the idea that you know Hmm. they really suggested that we don't operate in the media and um information business in china so that was when we got the hint and we said well you know if we're gonna pull out of china we want to put our efforts with somebody that we think could be a winner and this and was with even with the three seven two one acquisition already. Yes, this is post three seven two one. I see. Um, because we owned it one hundred percent, and um, and the government was not really keen on having 
a foreign-owned entity that has potential information and media presence. So, um, so, so we, we knew we had to get out. If, if you were selling Starbucks coffee, you wouldn't have this issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, we and part of the debate was, you know, if we're gonna leave China, we should parlay our assets there into something else. And right. that's when we went down this investment path. And um, and obviously back that by that time we've reconnected with Jack, but also more importantly the that e-commerce was not an area that was subject to foreign investment, and so we felt that if we can translate our holdings in China or operations in China into an investment in a minority investment, the government would be fine with that, and and obviously the uh, in the area of e-commerce that was that was fine. So so that's how we ended up at least uh, sequentially get there. Um, um, so the deal was $1 billion cash plus Yahoo China yes. for 40% stake in Alibaba. Correct. Uh, and so I think the valuation of Alibaba afterwards was a $5 billion? $5 billion post. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's why it should yeah. be $5 billion post. Yeah. Well, maybe that was pre. <laughs> 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 Depending on how much you value Yahoo China, right? So, um, um, But I remember, I mean, that this was done in... 2005. 2000, uh, 2005, after the Heista... Uh, summit uh, in May right. uh, in Pebble Beach. And when that was announced in, I think it was June or July, it was uh, earth-shattering because it was on the heel of Baidu gone public, valuation uh, quadruple post-listing uh, post to about $5 billion. And you have two $5 billion companies, one, com- one private, uh, public, one private in China. And everyone said they had these companies had no business being valued on much. There's just not enough revenue to ever, ever justify it. Um how did you? How were you able to make that decision uh, to do this and commit one third of cash on yeah, Yahoo well, Balance Sheet? I mean, I would argue without you as a CEO, this deal would never have gotten done. Well, I, I wasn't the CEO. Uh, Terry Summer was the CEO, and but Terry was, uh, you know, with me in China at that moment when the government told us that we couldn't be in China anymore. And Terry was extremely positive about China, and quite frankly, you know, doesn't get enough credit for all the things we did there. But we. You know, in my mind and, and thinking back about it, it was a very obvious thing to do. It, you know, it, it, and, and I think a lot of people say this about decisions that you feel good about or right decisions that you, you don't really think of all the difficulties. But I think in retrospect, you're right. It is a huge investment for a company uh, like Yahoo to use that much of our cash to bet on that kind of valuation on that all market. Right. In an unproven market, unproven, up to point, completely unproven. Yeah, but I, I think there are a couple of uh, obviously guide guideposts. One is you know we saw the success in in Japan, where we were in the auction business and commerce business, and we saw you know betting on um, the the sort of the betting on the on the leader. Um, even though there's not a lot of tech, you know there's mm-hmm. um, a lot of marketplace dynamics that are already starting to take effect. Um, and the second thing which I've talked about publicly is that during the time we were running Yahoo China, whether it's um, through our team or with Zhou Hongyi, we tried to establish our e-commerce business using the same playbook um, that we did in Japan. And we were just getting killed and completely annihilated by Taobao. And, um, and we, so we knew how fierce and how um, smart and how strategic uh, both, you know, on the, on the, on the, on the grand level, but also on the tactical level, 
Jack and his team was. And I think um, that we, through that competition, we, we grew, you know, we became very respectful of his capabilities. So, um, so it was, it was kind of in this uh, humbling experience of having competed with Jack that we realized we'd rather partner with him than, than try to compete with him. And I think Jack uh, and, and Alibaba benefited from that investment as well. They really, yes. like you said, you know, uh, put him on the map as, as sort of the leading internet company in China. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, it was the right time, clearly. We were very clearly lucky. we win. Yeah. Besides uh, Jack and Alibaba, how appealing was working with someone like a Robin Lee and Baidu or uh, Pony Ma and Tencent to you back then? Well, I, I think... You had your choice. Well, I don't know if we had our choice, but clearly they are great entrepreneurs and they, they are proving, you know, if you look at Pony... You know, well, we, you and WeChat, WeChat. You know, the acquisition of WeChat turned out to be one of the yeah, seminal. From Foxmail to yeah, WeChat. Come on, yeah, That's it's great, uh, great unbelievable. Deal. And 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 you know, we could talk about their history and how they've made multiple transitions yes. in business models and into, into success. So, but I, I would say that the simple answer is that while they're great entrepreneurs, for Yahoo to be involved in search, which is Baidu, or in QQ, which messaging. is communications yep. and messaging, would have been difficult. And I think um, I think e-commerce was the the obvious safe place for us to be from a in. government view standpoint. Correct, correct. Got it. So that was a factor as well. Yep. And you mentioned earlier about getting very clear understanding from Chinese government what you could or could not do in China. Just well, I didn't say it. it was clear. <laughs> it was clear that we couldn't do it. <laughs> but it was never clear that you could do something. So, uh, yes. so we, so, you know, you, you try and you, you hope that, um, you're, you're reading the tea leaves correctly, correctly. along the way. Yeah. Right. So in, in that context, do you think that, uh, switching the topic a little bit, that, uh, Travis and Uber decided to do a deal with DD, which was a, GG portfolio yeah. to sell Uber China to DD in exchange for a stake in DD and have DD have a stake in Uber in the US as well. Do you think that was a similar context uh, 10 years later? I, I, you know, I'm an observer on the board for DD and, um, but I don't really know the details of, of that transaction. My, my guess is that there was some government, certainly agreement for them to you know, first of all, there had to be some sort of government approval for DD and Quaidi to merge right. uh, previously. Right. And then when DD and Uber resolved their competition in China, the government had to at least let it happen because uh, they're, they're essentially the last two players left. Right. So um, whether there was significant issues with Uber being a U.S. company in China, you certainly can speculate that, you know, if you have um, massive amounts of data around transportation and routes and people's moving patterns that, that could be construed as something that's sensitive. And so, uh, but, but whether that really was a factor or not, who knows? I mean, I wasn't part of the right. discussion. Trava had shared in certain circles that his understanding from Chinese government was a subsidy, in his case, could be ends up being illegal soon. <laughs> and, if that's, and if that's the best way for Uber to catch up, Uber obviously need to think twice about what to do. Yeah, I you know it's it's um yeah welcome to welcome to China. Right. Well, and on that on that note, uh, same thing happened here as well in the U.S. Where Alibaba's most recent interest in acquiring a payment processor in the U.S. was denied, and this is even after Jack had already famously met with President Trump and had a great conversation and for President Trump to praise him afterwards. Um, so it seems like there's just a lot of 
politics and politicization around U.S.-China business dealings uh, in a way that's uh, kind of uh, not really aligned with the underlying business economics and in, 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 in interest. Yeah, I think it's one of our, given GGV's interest and in, in a lot of our investment commonalities is obviously cross-border. And I think Correct. the U.S.-China cross-border issues are getting more complex rather than less. And as tech companies become bigger and bigger, if you look at Alibaba or Amazon or, you know, obviously your your FANG stocks and companies, there are enormous complexities now, you know, with regards to how these deals are evaluated or proposed deals. And, and it's not even just internet deals, right? I mean, if you look at all the semiconductor deals in the last couple of years, the, the regulatory body in the U.S., which is CFIUS, is, mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is largely a political body. So I think it becomes much more difficult for sort of these bigger companies to do deals that may touch on other people. So you can imagine it's not maybe just the government that don't want certain deals to happen like the one you're talking about. Maybe other companies that don't want that to happen, and they will sure, lobby. A lot so, of lobbying. Yeah. So I think it's a politicized issue right now between the two countries. We certainly hope that that environment and atmosphere will change over time, as I think the best outcome is for uh, more free-flowing of products and ideas and, and, and capabilities and markets. But but for now, it seems like we're entering more of a, a more cautious time between the two countries. Right. I know that, for example, for, from the perspective of Visa and MasterCard, they are extremely wary of Alipay and Tempeh. The um, China volume of Alipay and Tempeh together is becoming closer and closer to what uh, Visa and MasterCard are doing on a global basis outside of China. So it's, uh, like you said, it's not just a political issue, but also for other players in the market, people are just wary of uh, the uh, fast expansion that uh, Chinese companies have on them more in, in general. Right. And uh, with Chinese uh, tourists being the fast-growing outbound traffic uh, anywhere, uh, and the spending power that, that you put on top of that, it, it makes any uh, existing player in any uh, domestic market in other countries wary of sure. what, what could happen. So it's almost as if this may not be the perfect analogy that um, the Chinese company and the U.S. company are going after different parts of the world. We see that, as you probably have seen as well, U.S. companies do better in Western Europe, Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, to, to some extent, Latin America. And as um, really the executives within, uh, of India descent in American companies have uh, uh, shown that they can do well in India as well. Um, whereas the Chinese companies do better in Southeast Asia, including Indonesia, the Muslim countries in the Middle East and uh, North Africa, and to some extent into Eastern Europe. Yeah. Seems like the uh, the world is almost divided into half. Um, and you look at the Chinese politics of one bell and road expanding into um, Middle East, Eastern Europe, uh, parts of different, different parts of Europe and North and Africa in general. That the world is becoming more and more into these two camps. Yeah, and it's not clear how um, whether it's really two camps or not. I think as the U.S. current policy tends to be, you know, retrenching from a lot of our even you know longtime allies, it's uh, it's unclear how even the U.S. influence in foreign markets will will, will continue. But I do think, and Evan Osnos wrote, you know, uh, inadvertently or 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 you know, I think he wrote it yesterday or today that. The U.S. is helping make China great, and right. um, 
and and I think part of it, article on, yeah, on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn this morning. Yeah. But I think I think part of it is, as you said, that the the government policy of One Belt One Road is taking a lot of government resources to build infrastructure, to build ties and development into Southeast Asia, sort of the Indochina and mm-hmm. in, in, in Indonesia, and then you know sort of. Um, uh, westward through the stands and and into Africa, and so um, it won't be surprising, I think, to see Chinese companies also um, the private sector being taken advantage of the sort of the, the tailwind that the government is supplying. Right. So, if you had the chance to do it again, would you have tried operating in China from day one, or would you have picked a local uh, or invested in a local company from day one? I, I, you know, it's, those are hard questions because um, I think I think w- with our experience, it was a moment in time. You know, um, today, if you were to try to start, you know, you wouldn't start what we started back then uh, because the rules are more clear, the more players, the market is more developed. So, it, it, you know, we would have to find another um, kind of a, a, a greenfield early stage endeavor to, to have that question. But but I would say that uh, having spent the time of trying to operate in China, having spent the time through acquisitions and trying to acquire a Chinese company, having spent the time competed with uh, Taobao and Alibaba, you know, it led us to this very, as I said, almost a natural uh, an obvious decision to invest in Alibaba, which I, I don't think we would have done had we gone in there trying to invest, you know, as a pure investor, because we didn't have the skill set of being an investor. Or, um, or trying to find a partner. And believe me, we try to find partners, but, but finding a, a JV partner or something else would have been, I think, also very complex. So, um, so it be, it's because, you know, it's, it's almost, um, like the old saying goes, you know, every, every step we took, it was for a reason. And, um, now we, we never imagined, I never imagined that by investing in Alibaba in 2005, we would end up having Alibaba being nearly a, a half a trillion dollar company. But, but certainly we felt like they were our best chance to be successful in China through, through, through their hard work and their, their perseverance. What kind of advice do you give to U.S. companies who seek your advice as they try to go to China? And what do you think big companies like Facebook or Airbnb should do as they approach the Chinese market? Well, I think um, I, I tell a lot of our companies to try to go early, not necessarily to set up a, a very inflexible joint venture or anything like that, but go early to explore the market, get to know people, build relationships, understand the market, and understand their product market fit. It, it really is two different worlds now. I think the Chinese market, especially almost in every market, B2B, B2C, is, I think, as different in China as, in, in, as anywhere else from the U.S. So. So there is no sort of, hey, we can do what we did in the U.S. and it'll work in China. Probably more, more the other way around these days. So I'm sure we'll get to that. So, yeah. so that's, that's one thing is to just to understand China early and meet people early. And the second thing is, if there really is an ambition to China, there, there has to be a plan, but also you have to probably go in there before too big. And I think there is some wariness by the multiple different factions within China, whether it's the government or the private sector or, whoever to say, hey, you know, if you're a large, large company like Airbnb or Facebook coming to China, uh, you know, there is there is more worry about them coming in and going against what a government policy is or government agenda is.
is. Um, I think Airbnb probably has had more success than, say, Facebook. But over time, I think all these all these things will will um, play out in a way that it, it really depends on. I think what the market would accept in China and the government would accept in China. But I, I think by going somewhat early helps companies not to have that big um, sort of company syndrome being being put on them. It's much tougher on the company because they're not big. But I think if they really view China as a core market, then they should do that uh, sooner rather than later. I guess the lesson is that it's never too early to to factor China into your growth plan and hire people who yeah, have China knowledge. Yeah, I think it could be a, you know, I think if you ran a company or used to run companies, you know, you think about entering markets in 12, 24, maybe, you know, on the outset, 36 months. And I think in China, you just have to think much longer term. It may take you five years to get anywhere. Um, it may take you 10 years. And we know plenty of companies that um, have been there for a long time and still have very little market share, but they're, they're, they're continuing to work and trying to cultivate relationships. And so China, I say this to a lot of our company, China is, is not a place for transactions. China is really a place for relationships. Mm-hmm. And if you view it as a transaction to say, hey, we're going to start a JV, we're going to knock this off of our checklist, and we're going to move on to the next country. It's not going to go well. It's not, well, chances you know, are. chances are it's not going to go well. Yeah. And um, uh, whereas I think if those people who really sustain, commit capital, and, you know, now China want you, you know, China by and large wants the companies to go to their country and do something for them. You know, they're China now, right? right. So this isn't 20 years ago. So so the China status has also changed. So I think it, it really it really takes a different kind of attitude and, and a long-term view. Yeah, it's not just another market. Right. It seems like... Uh, any founding team in the U.S., if you ha- don't have someone who's from China originally or of Chinese descent, it makes it a lot harder to understand China. We are both in Wish, um, and uh, Peter's fantastic, uh, and also having Danny, who's a co-founder who's from China, makes it a lot easier for Wish to figure out how to leverage China for its global ambition. Well, yeah, and and I think uh, you know th- th- these are all generations, right? I, I think uh, right now there are. In your in your example, you're exactly right. Having somebody that understood China and Chinese and 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 can go back there and function there, um, which is not all the Chinese people can. I, I can't no. go back and function there, but um, but Danny can, and um, I think that's critical. But I think over time, as China becomes a, a market that everybody has to be able to expose himself to, um, because it probably. You know, right now is still the U.S. and maybe Western Europe, but pretty soon China is is the top one or two market that you have to be successful at if you're building a company. So, um, so that 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 may or may not be exclusively the domain of people who are Chinese. I mean, you know, you, but so far it has been that you, you really takes a while to to really understand China and and you know, being an expat there is not the easiest. Um, thing to do no. in a very very dynamic competitive environment. I mean, your show is called you know nine nine six, right? I mean, that's a a very shocking kind of thing for people who visit there right. from Silicon Valley to yeah. nine p.m. Yeah, seven six, days a week. Six, that's the yeah. worst schedule. Yeah, in internet space in China. Uh, if we look at just two set of data points, look at the valuation of Amazon versus Alibaba. Alibaba is somewhere on eighty percent, ninety percent valuation of Amazon. Alibaba arguably uh, has all of China and parts of Southeast Asia. And Amazon has, uh, you know, worldwide market. They have some presence in China. Uh, yet, yet the valuation is very close. You look at Didi versus uh, Uber. Didi started four years after Uber did. Didi, you're not an observer on their board. They are primarily a Chinese company with strategic investments elsewhere, outside of China. 
and Uber has, you know, all around the world with minority stake in China. Um, yet the valuation of two company are very similar to each other now. So the Chinese market has just been um, for the right mobile internet company who has the right product market fit and who do work nine nine six can build a company and scale them much faster right. than anybody else who has the rest of the world. That has never happened before. Yeah. What does that mean and how it's going to impact Silicon Valley? I've noticed some of the smartest product people in Silicon Valley are increasingly paying attention to what's happening in China with WeChat, with uh, Alipay, and, and so forth. And that has changed the way they think about building product in the U.S. and for other markets. Is that a growing trend? Or is it just more of an anomaly still? If you had to make a prediction five, especially 10 years down the road, how would the teams in Silicon Valley think about these uh, different things going on? I, you know, it's a really good question. And I think um, part of the, the reality is that the volume that, you know, the companies that you talk about, whether it's, you know, Alibaba or Tencent or Didi, the volume they do every day astounds astounds you know people who don't spend time there um you know so it's it's adding another zero sometimes two zeros when you talk about uh, skill in china you know know, whether it's meituan doing deliveries or you know doing number of transactions in in alipay and tencent tenpay or the number of rides that dd gives you know it's um it, it, it so there is a um scale factor that is extremely important I think um, when people are developing products in China is that, it, you know, they don't necessarily need the fanciest technologists, but they got to handle the kind of scale that's much, much, much higher um, out of the gate, right? And be stable. And so there's a, um, so there's an element of, and as those companies grow and as those companies scale, um, they, they can, they can take that advantage of stability and scale elsewhere that U.S. companies may have to re, do to get that kind of scale elsewhere, uh, especially if they go to China, for example. Right. So, so that's one one element. The other element, I think, is that there is still a a lot of more fundamental innovation here in Silicon Valley. It is still the melting pot of the world's best entrepreneurs. You know, we have entrepreneurs. You and I both probably have entrepreneurs from every country, right. every um, ethnicity, and 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 so it's a very diverse set of entrepreneurs. And I think in China it's still relatively mono, you know, monolithic in terms of they're mostly Chinese. But but you're starting to see innovation that is really for China market sake, really indigenous and really local. And you're seeing business models develop. And you're seeing because of the scale, and you're seeing the density of the population allow certain things to happen in China that won't happen in the U.S. So we're seeing business model differences, right? Not just technology or product differences, but really starting to see business model differences. And I think that's what's going to happen in five to 10 years where you're going to have business models that really are innovative and different in China than than the U.S. I'm a little closer to Alibaba, but, you know, the new retail that Alibaba is, is advancing you know, prop, the and, yeah, it's yeah. really hard to do here in the U.S., right. but um, but it really works in in, in China. So th- that I think you're just beginning to see China going from you know you could you could say the early days of the internet being sort of a copycat culture mm-hmm. to more indigenous development for local market and products, which is now graduated to more indigenous business models and innovation. And when you have all those things really working, it's kind of like a flywheel, right? The business models we get biggest models, and you're seeing not only. Alibaba, Tencent, and Baidu being large players in their own ecosystems in terms of investment and M&A, you're seeing their 
next generation in Didi and Meituan and and those people are now very aggressive investors in M&A as well. So they're, they're really creating their own sort of ecosystem there. I think part of the reason things scale so fast in China is due to the leapfrogging effect. So sure. China skipped credit cards into mobile payment, uh, skipped on-premise software into SaaS, skipped landline to mobile. Um, how much do you think the growth can be attributed to this effect? And how can companies continue to scale once this low-hanging fruits are already picked? Um, it's a great question. I do think leapfrog has been a great benefit to China, but you also have to remember India could have done the same leapfrogging. Mm-hmm. And by most measures, they're... Most developing countries could all have leapfrog. They could have all done it. And, um, so what um, made China different? Right. And, and so, so I think there, there is, um, and, and, you know, by most measure, India is far behind China when they could have arguably been about the same starting point in the mid-90s or late-90s, right? So, um, so I do think that the leapfrog is something that China as a country were very conscious of trying to take advantage of, and it's probably a lot of it is the government leadership, and but, but, but a lot of it is, I think, the entrepreneurial spirit to say, hey, you know, we're going to solve a problem, and we're going to solve a problem with no existing infrastructure, in, and whether it's logistics, which they didn't have a vast logistics network like UPS or FedEx or whatever, or uh, like you said, landline versus mobile phones, or um, uh, a number of other ways in which China developed faster than the U.S. And I think e-commerce is one of them, right? I mean, uh, for a while, retail and e-commerce coexisted, but but it's clear that e-commerce has more benefit without having to go build a bunch of malls and stores. So I think, I think there is a conscious effort for China to do these leapfrogging moves. Now, I think over time, you know, as as things scale, you, you, it's harder and harder to leapfrog. You can't really leapfrog existing, you know, scaled infrastructure. So that may slow down growth at some point, which it has to slow down at some point. But but the, the question really is: is there is there new areas in which they can grow just as fast from leapfrogging perspective? And that's um, uh, you mentioned cloud and SaaS. I think I think there is actually. An argument to be made that um, SaaS in China is still very much the early days. Um, you know, there's not a very yes, Ali Cloud is a big player. AWS is just getting started there, but um, but it's not like here where you know major, major, major businesses are running on the cloud. There are still a lot of room to grow. I think in digital um, media in China online, and and I think that's an area where there's still a lot of opportunity. So so. My guess is that you know, as as area mature, they need to keep continue to find leapfrogging opportunities, and and it's not surprising that a lot of these large internet companies in China are starting to look outside of China. Um, you know, Indonesia being a key battleground for a lot of companies, but yep. um, but it's going to happen elsewhere in the world as well. Yeah, it seems like the, the question that Zara just posed. A lot of smart uh, journalists in the West, especially New York Times, where the, the information on Rico asked similar question, thinking that um, China benefit because it was behind and leapfrog. No, you know it's it's easier. Somehow it implies it's easier. But if we you and I look at the quality of the entrepreneurs from um, the portal days to the uh, gaming days oh, yeah. uh, to the uh, search messaging e-commerce days. Now to the mobile internet days, the quality of engineers continue to go up. Yeah, and for one reason or the other, a lot of these smart people may have been educated or working in the U.S. 
whether it's due to glass ceiling or other factors, it was um, it made a, it kind of made it easier for them to not easier, but kind of prompt them to try to go back to China, make it work there, mm. rather than be here to do it, and not to make the, this into a China India comparison, but uh, uh, a lot of Indian. Um, uh, executives who may have been entrepreneurs in India ends up doing being very successful in the valley in 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 Boston in Seattle and so forth. So the the talent that would have the comparable talent that may have been able to propel I- India to the next level ends up staying here in the U.S. Whereas the same level uh, quality of talent ends up going back to China and start this whole new I- internet sector. And obviously the government played a part in allowing that to happen and not try to overregulate it too much. Yeah. And so, one thing I also noticed is that for the Chinese um, entrepreneurs over these four generations, in some sense, we they are and we are lucky that internet was the time that this uh, awakening happened, and the spirit of internet made it possible to continue to come up with new ways to increase efficiency into an ecosystem. In which, I mean, who would have thought that ten years ago? Uh, the most valuable companies in China would be non-government owned, right. i.e., Alibaba and right. Tencent, in two thousand five, two thousand six. There was China Petrochemical, it was uh, China uh, Mobile, it right. was uh, ICBC Bank. Um, these days, that uh, that that you have number one, number two, most valuable company in China being completely privatized and run by entrepreneurs, and that trend could accelerate over the next ten years. Um, then that's just something that no one would have thought of possible 10 years ago. So something about internet, something that fit Chinese uh, innovational and entrepreneurial spirit that kind of enhanced each other to make this great uh, change in China. The question is, could that be exported to Indonesia, yeah. to Middle East, to other countries where one bell, one row may play a factor? And somehow this model can be a interesting developed model um, for other emerging markets that didn't have, may not have been able to do that on their own, but now could be affected by China? It's a great question, Hans. And, and I think, you know, if just to go back on something you said, I, I think there's a little bit of other, uh, there's an, uh, another perspective with regards to Chinese entrepreneurs. I, I think that um, as the China market has taken off and, and started rising, quite frankly, there were probably more opportunities for them to go back um, from a career and, and contribution standpoint than staying here in the U.S. I, I don't know if there's really a glass ceiling. We can get into that, but but obviously there's no glass ceiling for Indian tech executives and, right. and, and, and a number of other ethnicities. So it may just be that the opportunity in China is much bigger, and you could probably argue that you know for Indian global executives to go back to India, what are they going to do there, right? So so it really does speak to the, the rise of China's economy and the rise of China's development to attract, to make that, make coming back for a lot of these uh, overseas Chinese to be attractive. Not all of them have been successful, but I think that there continues to be a massive need for talent in China. Mm-hmm. And so there is no question that um, as you think about, you know, we highlighted, you highlighted a number of great entrepreneurs in China, um, but you know, you need hundreds of thousands of skilled um, tech workers and programmers and coders and developers, and now you know, big data and AI capable um, engineers. These are in extreme shortage in China, even right. though they're trying to crank them out. So, to me, it's more of the opportunity back in the market that they that they have the heritage from, rather than uh, than anything else. And and to that point, the question is, can Chinese companies expand outside of China or help countries? 
markets that um, have not been developed outside of China. I think that's the next big question and the next big phase mm-hmm. for China's growth. Um, everybody's trying to do it a little bit differently. I think governments are getting smarter post Uber and post all these companies come in. And, and so it's going to be less straightforward, I think, than the past 20 years. Right. You're going to deal with local regulations. You're going to deal with local people probably day one, um, especially if you're a large company. And so these become sort of upfront negotiated political government deals in, in many instances. And, um, and, and, and so I think it takes a different skill set to, n- to maneuver in all these different countries who all have different needs and being able to kind of create not only a sustainable market, but also develop talent locally, because it's hard to export a bunch of Chinese managers into a country for a very, very long time. You right. know, we've seen kind of Japan try to do that. It didn't work in the 80s and yep. 90s. And so it's got to be a different way. We Nobody knows what it is yet, but I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the next big challenge for a lot of um, these companies. Right. You obviously are very very much aware of Alibaba's acquisition in Southeast Asia and uh, exporting Chinese engin- uh, managers to work in Southeast Asia. We also have seen other companies in Hangzhou building up sizable presence through a lot of local hires in Middle East. Right. Um, and it's also in the area of e-commerce exporting Chinese goods curated, um, more like a T-Mall model, to uh, uh, markets in the Muslim countries. And they're growing extremely fast. And you can tell that uh, the consumers in Muslim countries are not used to getting this influx of goods at such cheap, uh, affordable prices. Um, and so good quality at great prices, it's, it's a great formula for emerging markets yeah. worldwide. And so it, it seems like um, the Chinese companies, even without too much government overtly supporting them, are finding way to expanding in emerging markets. So... Um, and they all want nine nine six, if not twelve twelve seven. So mm-hmm. it, it seems that one could also guess that the local executives in these uh, Muslim countries that work in these Chinese companies eventually maybe their own, you know, Jerry Yan and Jack Ma, yeah. uh, in, in those countries. So I guess my question is that U.S. by not letting Chinese in is missing out getting these data points to know what's going on around the world. And sure, for the short term, you prevented a Chinese company from coming into the U.S. But longer term, you're missing out what's potentially possible and not making the necessary changes that you need to compete on a global basis uh, you know, earlier. Yeah. Well, I, I think any barrier, you know, I'm a globalist, so I, I think any barrier is generally negative. And you could argue that the U.S. being more protectionist now than before is missing out on certain trends that could be happening elsewhere in the world. And and I think China has been criticized for the last 20 years for not Opening benefiting yeah. from the great things that maybe companies like Google and Facebook are doing. So, um, so you know, I think it, it's easy to point out that these barriers tend to have a, a negative effect. But also, over time, I think, you know, it's it, it remains to be seen how how these different markets would develop. Because if markets that China now invests in end up more like China. Mm-hmm. The, there is, uh, and it's not just the market dynamics, but it's it's the way they government, they, they government think about it and, mm-hmm. and the trade and everything else. So I think the stakes are much higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've come back to that theme a couple of times, but I think the stakes are much higher and it's more complex. And uh, whoever wants to, to win in these markets now have to go in with much more at sort of more commitment than, than maybe they were able to do 10 years ago. Right. 
That's fair. So, so I wonder, out of the Chinese tech giants, which one do you think is best equipped to go global? And this is a question for both Hans and Jerry. Wow, face Jerry off, first. face off, huh? Jerry okay. First. Um, you know, it, it, I I think my original business was a, it was an internet portal or or search. Or information business, and so I think I think of information businesses as a little bit easier to move around. And I would say, you know, Tencent is probably in that camp. They they have an unbelievable asset in WeChat, and um, and and if the capabilities on WeChat is offered, you know, in other markets in its full capacity, I think it'd be very very difficult for other com- people to compete. And um, yes, there's there is WhatsApp and obviously line. in Line and um, I think I have them all. But you know, yeah. yeah. But but I do think that um, you know the, the the power of the network and the power of software is very easy to roll out. Now, Alibaba clearly is the other one that has payment as a potential way of entering markets, and their e-commerce is is once they establish it is very very powerful. very powerful as well. So, but in terms of being able to move quickly, I would imagine moving a messaging app around is probably a little bit easier. And but Tencent so far hasn't demonstrated the same level of commitment that Alibaba management team is at. Yeah, I, 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 it's a great question. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think they're happy to let the Chinese diaspora spread the WeChat for now. Got it. What about you? What do you think? I noticed that the Alibaba Tencent generation of entrepreneurs tend to be over 45, some even over 50 years in age. And that's a generation that grew up still treating the West as, you know, where a lot of innovation happened. And there's a very healthy dosage, dosage of respect. The entrepreneurs that we're seeing that are between sort of age 30 and 40 grew up when Chinese internet market started to grow fast. They do respect the U.S., but there's a lot more ambition in their part to show that their way is a better way. Yeah. I look at the Chen Wei, uh, Didi, or um, Zhang Yiming at uh, Total, or at uh, Wang Xing at uh, Meituan. All of them have shown more aggression at globalization. And even the younger entrepreneurs in Hangzhou that are used to doing stuff as cross-border are building companies that are exclusively focusing on China outbound now. And their aggression is even stronger than the Tencent or Audi mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. Um, so I think it will be extremely interesting in the next 10 years. Um, I do, I, like you, think that everything's becoming a lot more politicized. So uh, Chinese companies are more likely to do well in countries that are politically friendlier to China. Right. Um, and hence the Muslim countries and African countries uh, and the Southeast Asian countries make a lot more sense. Um, so it will be interesting to see uh, what happens in the next 10 years. Well, I like your answer. You're basically saying I'm old and you're young. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We're not a far apart age. So we, I have to look to back younger entrepreneurs uh, to give me a sense of, of, of yes, what's hopeful for tomorrow. Uh, that's why we're all doing this. Yes. Stay young, right? Yeah, stay young. Yeah. Uh, we can't definitely by ourselves. We can't do that anymore. Speaking of young people, I think your story of meeting Jack um, at an early age confirms the thesis that, and I've always felt this way, that we should judge people not just by who they are today, but also by who they could become in 10, 20 years. And, and now you're an investor. How much of investing do you think is judging people and like their future trajectory? And how much of it is pure business? Well, I, it's really a good question. I think if you're investing at the stage that we are at Ame, it really is early stage, sometimes 
two founders in a garage and just with an idea. And so I would say anything pre-Series A, you know, seed or, or late seed, even some Series A companies, you're really, you know, 80% investing on the team. I think where they want to go, the market matters. I think the sort of the product idea matters, obviously. But it's very different than later stage investing. You know, if you're looking at a Series B or growth, then it does matter where you're spending all that capital to go to market. But before you go to market, it really is about the ideas behind the entrepreneur. And, um, you know, Hans knows this, but, but some of our some of my most successful portfolio companies have started the company under one premise, and now they're doing something completely different, like almost 180 degrees different. And, um, and 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 I think that you can only explain that by having invested in people who are, you know, uh, doggedly persistent in in solving problems and in, in, in following where their their gut instinct tells them to go. And what advice do you have for people who are trying to de- develop this good judgment of other people? Honestly, the more I've done this, and you know, we're coming up on six years here as an investor, um, the more it feels like it's luck. You know, it, it, it really is. I mean, obviously, I, I say that jokingly, but I do think that if you look at our successful entrepreneurs, there are people who are very experienced. There are people who are first time. You look at some of our entrepreneurs who failed multiple times. You know, some are very experienced, and some are are. And, and we all know, and certainly I, I believe that's the case for me personally, that building companies, starting companies, you, you have to work really hard. You have to prepare all your life to do it. You have to really do it with all, all, all commitment and full passion. But luck has a huge part to do with it. And for me to have started Yahoo when we did, it was really, I think, the good timing more than anything else. For me to meet Jack as somebody that you know that was one of my first people I met in China is 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 blind luck. So I, I think you you have to work hard and you have to prepare yourself. But I think luck is a huge part of making success. And and I think in our now, if I had an algorithm to pick <laughs> lucky <Jack's>. entrepreneurs, <laughs> yeah, that would be um, that would be worth selling. But I think look, you know, I, you look at cryptocurrency, right? I mean, right. four years ago. Yeah, who would have bet on it, right? So, right. so I, I think you really, and, and it remains to be seen. So I think it really, it really comes down to, at least in my mind, understanding the rationale, how the entrepreneur thinks, how they, what are their motivations are, um, how they plan to deal with adversity, how they tell their story. Sometimes just listening to somebody's pitch changes your opinion about you right. know, them. Sometimes you, you look at the slide and you say, oh my God, this is going to be great. And you hear it and you go, oh my God, oh God. it's terrible. Right. And, the, and the opposite could be true too. So Correct. so to me, it's, a, it's really a feel game and it's not about numbers. I don't know. I would say it's hardest form of investing because you just you just never know. You're really, you're really rolling the dice. Another person that you met early on is Masa, Masayoshi son of South, South Bank. Um, what do you think of his vision fund and how that's changing the VC industry? Well, I, I you know, um, I think Masa, you know, from the first day I met him, was he different than almost? No, else I was going to say he. Right, right. I mean, you know, he he is the most persistent, tireless. You know, he keeps pushing himself and pushing the people around him. You know, he he has, and he's a, he he makes bets. Mm-hmm. He, he he makes big bets, mm-hmm. um, and people remember a lot of his successes. Yahoo, fortunately, was one of his early successes, but he's also had plenty of failures. Mm-hmm. But he never lets the failures deter him. He right. he just goes back and and tries harder. And I think what the Vision Fund has done is allow him to 
achieve something that I think he's always wanted to do, which mm-hmm. is rather than being an investor that has some influence, right. but not, not, not you know, influence. still a passive influence. Right. Like most investors are, quite right. frankly, even us, yes. you know, we, we can we can pound the table and if the entrepreneur doesn't want to listen. Um, but in his case, because of the checkbook and because of the platform, right. you know, he has a very clear platform that he wants to build around AI and around IoT and around the emergence of cloud that he feels like he can use that power of the capital to create the next generation platform companies. Performing Karatsu. To modernize the, the Karatsu notion. But I think, um, and, you know, you're seeing the, some, the beginnings of that with DD and Uber investments. Oh, transportation. Yeah. And um, he's betting big on, on AI. He's a big believer in singularity. So I, I think he's very purposed. And I think he wants to do more than just being a passive investor and let's right. see portfolio companies grow up and sell it. Yeah. He wants to influence them. He wants to drive a certain direction. And it's a big, bold bet. And that's, that's Masa. Just taking a look at the, the rice sharing market, I mean, he's an investor in Kwaidi that ends up being merged into DD. So number one in China already. Uh, he's an investor in Grab, not a GGV portfolio. That's number one in Southeast Asia. He's an investor in Ola, number one in India. And by investing all these Uber competitors in the biggest markets outside of US, he ends up indirectly or directly, you could argue, to drive down the valuation of Uber. Now he can invest in Uber at much more attractive prices now. Um, and yeah. after an investment, it may be easier to replicate it, the uh, Uber China DD deal in Southeast Asia and in India to have the local number one player buy out Uber assets locally so that Uber can devour more of that resource back home on autonomous driving, for example, or Uber Eats or other markets, sure. other, other sure. business more profitable and more interesting and more disruptive. And so in some sense, he's trying to use the resource that he has to rationalize the, the, the market to form better Kairatsus. Um, and yeah, he learned from the Alibaba Yahoo lessons yeah. to do it better now the third yeah. time. Well, and, and as you said, you know, it's a, uh, to the extent that people compete and, and cooperate in different regions on the rice share as a market, for example, you know, it's a, it's a win, 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 right? I mean, nobody's subsidizing and losing money and burning cash. Yes. And, and, and everybody can be more profitable. And, and for him, that drives up his investment of asset value, right? Yes. So, so he's, he's got a very clear view of how, these things could be made to be successful, right? But he still got he still got a lot to prove in terms of being able to really realize some of these things over time. Sure. Um, but I think he's 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 that's he, he, like you say he'll make his share of mistakes. Yeah. Right. Um, but the ones that are to prove to be a winner, like Yahoo, like Alibaba, is going to make a ton more. That's 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 the plan. Yeah. Yahoo's investment in Alibaba has been called the best investment an American company has ever made in a Chinese company. Which investment do you think has been the second best? I, you know, look, I, I, I think it's not an American company, but um, but NASPER, you know, invested in Tencent. Yeah, people don't talk about that, but yeah. I, I, it's mind-boggling. And uh, They went in at what, $20, 30000000 million valuation? It's, it's incredible. And they own 35%, 30%, whatever so, 34%, it is. 34%. Yeah. Yeah. So, Did not sell a single share. Um, so they're, they're, but you know there there are these stories that um, that I think seem incredible now, but but I, I think um, it, it's what makes this whole venture business so interesting is that you know it doesn't uh, for 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 Jan and Brian to start WhatsApp and have fifty people and sell it to Facebook for nineteen billion dollars right. is uh, um, is is those kinds of Silicon Valley stories or Beijing stories right. you know that that makes every entrepreneur want to want to join do this. to do this but um 
but I, I also think you know we may be coming into an era where we might see more of those kinds of investments rather than less because mm-hmm. um, the scale is a lot bigger now. The scale is a lot bigger, and um, you know there's disproportionate kind of dynamics in the marketplace for the winners versus for the, winner, the losers. Yeah. Number and, one player, yeah. And so I think that's the that's the that's going to be the the big thing is who's the next winner in a very big space and. Um, um, a lot of people argue that uh, today startups are pawns of big players, whether it's Fang in the U.S. or um, BAT in China. Do you think that's the case? Well, I think you know if you look at investors, right, and you guys are one of them, and and most investors invest thinking that you know on the upside there will be the next BAT, mm. whatever. But on the downside, they can sell it to one of these guys, right? Right. And you've had plenty of companies. We've had plenty of companies that always come to this crossroad where I can go raise a, a lot more money, or I can sell a company. And a lot of companies, even if the entrepreneurs may or may not want to sell the company, a lot of investors will take the, right. the the acquisition route. So I think I don't think it's so much that startups are pawns. I think the investment community, and, and by the way, I think the large companies are much more savvy now. Yes. And the um, capital is coming not just from the traditional venture capital firms, but also a lot of corporate money mm-hmm. and a lot of other money that's in the in the in the mix. So especially um, with sovereign wealth and sovereign wealth in. funds really starting to play a role in because you know they have to get the return somewhere, right? That's so, right. Um, so I, I think it's more complex than just saying companies are pawns. Right. I think really the investors are pushing for certain outcomes in most cases. Um, reasonably rational. That are, that are rational, and so you know, so you, you, it's very hard to find companies that want to be completely irrational for a very, very, very long time. You know, maybe companies like Magic Leap or something can can do that, but um, but it's very, very difficult for I think for a large number of small startups to be able to maintain and raise cash with their investors if there's an alternative to sell right. at a at an attractive valuation. And, and we will actually argue that in the older days. Uh, the era you remember in 10 years ago, mo- most of the Chinese startups uh, run the risk of being cloned by the big boys. Right. Because they don't even bother to buy you or invest in you. They just copy We can you. build it, yeah. That's right. right. They, but the, these days, because since the competition amongst themselves is so fierce, you almost have this issue of a balance of power that you know, they, they rather buy or invest to to save themselves time to compete against each other. Sure. That's actually, you can argue it's actually better for the startups. Than ever before. Yeah, and 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 I think you know we're seeing a little bit of that in the U.S. Where you know I would say five years ago the big internet companies in the U.S. were what much more acquisitive, and recently I would say that you know they're they're much less so. There's still acquisitions here and there, but they're more disciplined. They're they're a lot less aqua hires. Mm-hmm. There is a lot less of the you know billion dollar outcomes for for you know, for a few engineers kind of right. thing. So, um, and, and I, I would suspect that China will go through that same phase at some point. Um, right. and, and to me, these are just cycle of things, right? And so startups, in, in some ways, I think it's a much more rational world here in Silicon Valley now. You have to, you can't count on getting acquired two years from now. You know, you, you have to come up with something that, that's sustainable. Um, that's Not sustainable. Flash in the pan. That right. looks cool. And if we're yeah. going to sell them. And Hans, as you said, the big companies here are building everything. I mean, Google, you know, is, is, is building everything from, you know, autonomous driving to, you know, um, solving aging. And, you know, so there's, right. there's a wide array of activities that typically may be resorted, you know, may be reserved for the startups 
10 years ago. Now the big companies are doing it very actively. Right. So if you're a startup and you're getting venture capital, you have to come up with something that the big companies aren't going to do. Right. And I think that's also a shift um, uh, a little bit. You know, you have to solve problems that the big guys either don't want to solve or, or don't have solve time. Or fast enough. Right. Or, or you have to be far out enough that, that they, they won't get to it. Right. Um, and th- th- that's a totally different challenge. So looking forward, do you think the U.S. and China tech ecosystems will become more integrated or more separate and enclosed? Because I feel like for every app in the U.S., there's an equivalent in China, and both ecosystems are just very separate. And like people are the people are separate, and people use different things in different countries. I you know I think I think today if you um, I can't I can't even name one really that app that you would use in the U.S. You know, to a high frequency that you would go to China and use. Uh, I maybe you can come up with one, but um, but I, I do think that it's been you know two two ecosystem and and we talked about this. I think you know the 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 evolution of the last fifteen twenty years from copycat to indigenous product innovation to now indigenous business model innovation in China that is really playing out. Um, um, but there are I, I think there are. Um, ways in which companies uh, or, or the tech ecosystems can be more integrated. Eventually, things that run on the cloud here should run on the cloud there and vice versa. Whether it's, uh, you know, sort of the B2B world or enterprise software world, logic says you don't really need two salesforces.coms uh, or two workday.coms, which I'm on the board of. And so, you know, there's no real, you know, managing, you know, your enterprise probably is the same from a product perspective, cross borders and cultures. But I do think from a consumer standpoint, the, the consumer behaviors and the language and the cultures are different enough that you probably will see a separate ecosystem. Um, and some of the basics like mail and messaging and maps and um, search, they're already fully developed in China. So I, I think it's hard to say those things will revert back to a more common between the two countries. So. And, and to me, it's 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 no longer just about politics and saying you know companies the countries don't want to work with you. That's not the case. I just think the market's already developed fully. Yeah. The cultural and language yeah. differences. Yeah. yeah, the only ones I can think of are more e-commerce companies, whereas Airbnb or Amazon, you you can see people. Yeah, but Amazon is not app. a big app. It's not as big in China. Yeah. Um, as it is here by by a long shot. Yeah. But beyond e-commerce company, I think it's just very hard. Um, that's why you pay Alibaba as a partner. Yeah, twelve right. years ago, yeah. um, and also um, it seems like just on a, the, the point you made earlier about indigenous product innovations and indigenous business model innovations in China, it just seems that e-commerce and virtual item sale, anything that's non-advertising or is user-paid business model, are just becoming such a bigger influence than advertising. Sure, which is not a case here, and that uh, companies that know how to do that well to get users want to pay for things are better at emerging markets in general yes. because advertising in general is yes. not as developed in emerging markets. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I it, it you know, advertising is has, you know, really boosted Google and Facebook here in the US. Yeah. And, and probably, you know, obviously Western Europe, but advertising as a business model is a very small percentage of all these countries including China and in a lot of these emerging markets. Yeah. And so um, people pay for performance and also um, user user pay for satisfaction. And um, 
it's hard to imagine 10 years ago that Chinese users would pay for anything. Um, now that's, now, now they, they feel the growth of, uh, of Adi and Tencent and everybody else. It's incredible. Else. It's just incredible. Yeah. Last question I wanted to ask is on super apps. So actually just last week, uh, WeChat launched their mini games and also made their mini programs more powerful. And I feel like uh, WeChat is just becoming closer and closer to an operating system. Yeah. Um, so for Chinese people, it doesn't really matter if you have iPhone or Android. If you have WeChat, it's the same. And um, w- but we've seen over time that, and with Yahoo as well, that vertically integrated um, large platforms tend to get attacked by more category-focused players. Um, do you think super apps like Facebook and WeChat are sustainable? It, it, you know. <sighs> It's a, it's a great question. I, I think it is the case that if you are smart, you can continue to leverage the traffic and the eyeballs you have into more and more vertical applications. And so it's not surprising. I think, you know, for example, Facebook has always worried that if um, they weren't, they didn't have their own phone or that if Android wants to you know, cut them out right. because they're not an operating system. But, um, but I, I think if you developed enough critical applications within the same umbrella, and it's interesting to see them embed some functionality. I'm talking about Facebook. You know, yes. it's, it's interesting for them to embed some functionality within the Facebook app, and then they they split off Messenger and they've kept um, Instagram and and um, WhatsApp separate. So, right. it's a multi-app strategy right. in Facebook's case. In WeChat, I have not seen them go multi-app. Right. It's all one. They've uh, really kind of they've, uh, they've they've really put it in one, and we've seen dangers of that. I invest in a company where try to do all things to all people. Mm-hmm. Um, you run out of UI. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're still talking about a small phone, right? That's right. Uh, so, so how um, how companies can navigate that kind of um, growth is really tricky. Um, from a product design standpoint, from a user perspective, you know, it could it could leverage a lot of machine learning and AI to do that. But ultimately, I think you know it, it depends on whether they are getting more back from creating these verticals rather than less. Right? If you if you're creating a vertical and then you're getting less traffic back, then something's wrong. So um, I I I know the WeChat team a little bit. I think they're really 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 smart. But the, but I think Zara, your your point is well taken in that that's going to be one of their challenges is. They have to continue to do messaging well. They continue to have to be able to do a lot of these, probably payments well. But should they get into every little thing there is? Who knows, right? Um, and and that means there's going to be room for others to either partner or come up with their own. You know, Total is a very interesting yes. case study, right? Yes. I mean, there should be no reason Total be able to have be, so many apps to, to, well. to have been existed at all, yeah. and and for them to have that is really an opportunity that. That, that he saw. So right when we were coming up with question for this interview, the, the super app question was something that fascinated us because uh, you 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 could argue that Yahoo was the first generation super app that did everything. I mean, you did more work than Google ever did in the early days of the internet. That was so needed. And then uh, you have a uh, Facebook and and WeChat that um, doesn't need to do everything themselves anymore. Set up a platform that other app to plug into it um, because there are enough other apps around. You know, 10, 20 years later. And so if you look at that model and you look at what uh, someone like Total has done is take an app that, uh, a news aggregation that every portal has something like that. Yes. And somehow 
made out popular enough and frequently used enough to power another assortment of short-form video app. That's all user-generated content. So it is going to be interesting to see um, how how do you what are the other ways you can build something that somehow the big boys is not going to notice. Yeah, um, it happened right in front of them. It's something they're kind of familiar with. But five years later, we're going to look completely different than what they expect to be. If you don't know how to do that, then you could be arguing maybe a pawn of the big company. But even if you can get that right, yeah, you can always win. Yeah, it's pick your battles. But also, I think there is a underlying user need or demand that they fulfilled. Um, and I think that's because, you know, you're absolutely right, Hans, in describing what somebody needs to create. But this sounds like, you know. Um, Mission Impossible. It sounds like finding a needle in the haystack <laughs> and Mission Impossible. But um, but for those people who end up doing it, they listen to their customers. Yes. And they learn from their customers. Um, and it still happens every day. And that's why it's so fun to do what we're doing. Right. Agree. My last question is around uh, Apple in, uh, in, in, in China. Um, when Apple first went to China with uh, iPhone, uh, the government doesn't know what it is. It's, it's interesting. It's just another phone. You know, phones are all commodities, no problem, you can enter. After 10 plus years, you know, it is no longer just a phone, it's a computer. It has a lot of sensitive data that any government would uh, would want to know more about. Uh, what, what, if you have to pre- make a prediction, what what does Apple need to do over the next 10 years to continue to do what they do in China? Wow. You could, it's almost an anomaly compared to a Yahoo, compared to Facebook, yeah, compared to Discord. I mean, you know, they, they Apple's always been cited as the most successful American company in China that, to date, to date, and that nobody talks about. And um, um, and I think part of it is that they have, you know, and, and I I understand I don't know them very well, but I understand Tim Cook personally, even before he was CEO, spent you know enormous amount an of enormous time. amount of time in China. So it goes back to sort of what we talked about Build that relationship building that relationship, already. understanding the culture, really finding that value add for. The country of China mm-hmm. um, and make that value proposition unique enough that um, you'll both, be allowed to do what you want. Well, yeah, right. And and it's not. I don't think it's a one-way street. I think no. there are some check and balances in China where you can't just arbitrarily decide Apple goes out. Right? I mean, can you imagine right. the uproar? So, so there's a there is a process. I think Apple has spent a lot of time investing, not just money, but also you know a lot of relationships and a lot of obviously value add both both manufacturing and otherwise look I mean I think the next 10 years is going to be very different potentially given given that that you know this is like you said it's not just a handset it's it's more of a software company it's more of a data company than ever before and and as China works through their own thinking about cloud and how cloud works in China and I would argue that's an area where they're still fairly early in thinking through yes. you know data regulations regimes you know if I were Apple I would spend the time to think through how they can be additive to that process Correct. like they've done and so so if they're smart and do the right things they they will continue to be view, viewed as a valued player in China and if they aren't viewed as that then they will have problems just like right. everybody else I think what their role in the whole DD Uber thing is not as publicized. Right. They're, they could have invested in Uber and then invested in DD. And that made a huge difference in outcome. Um, and also, uh, you see Tim spend a lot of time 
visiting Chinese startups these days. Yeah. These are apps that are developed locally in China and doing well on Apple App Store in the U.S. Uh, in in China, but many of them have ambition to grow beyond China. And to the extent that Apple could be a facilitator of a Chinese ecosystem exporting that outside of China, it kind of fits what、uh, President Xi is trying to do, extending China's soft power beyond China. And and so you could tell Tim working very hard, much savvier than other, many other U.S. startups. I, I, I you know I don't know anything inside Apple, but it certainly looks、um, like they 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 have a plan that they've executed you know for well over a decade. Right. Right. So for the last part of the podcast, we have a、right. round of quick fire questions. Okay. First one is, who is the entrepreneur that you admire the most, and why? Besides you, and besides Jack,、uh, who else do you admire? Well, I think we talked about. I mean, I, the one that I'm really impressed by in China is Cheng Wei、mm. um, and Jing Jing Lu.、Yeah. But the, the, their combination Adidi, is、yeah. Adidi is really incredible,、Amazing. and、um, and Cheng Wei to me is one of the most、uh, you know strategic, but But grounded entrepreneurs I've I've met, and so it's not a it's not a surprise that he's where he's at today. And by the way, I think he is, you know, twelve by twelve by seven. I mean, he's,、yes. there's never a time that he's not working, and、um, it's incredible. I have my share of super entrepreneurs that I've, I've, I've the fortune of working with. I think Cheng Wei is probably the fastest growing executive over the last five years. From where he was before to where he's now, it's the biggest leap I've ever seen in an entrepreneur. It's just absolutely astounding. And、um, you know, a lot of people, you know, say that he doesn't speak English, but I think he is—he must understand it all because he's <laughs>、yes. so intuitively strategic. It's incredible. So,、um, yeah. So it's been fun. What's the best and worst decision you've ever made besides investing in Alibaba? Oh, see,、so、you can't you can't keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it probably you know obviously investing in Alibaba was turns out to be the best decision, but you know there were probably times people said that was the worst decision.、Uh, of course, you know right after we. But I, I would say that you know starting Yahoo,、uh, it's always Yahoo. it's always you know. But I would say that a lot of times your your toughest decisions are the ones that people will say it's your best or worst and. Only time will tell, and、um, which, which? which、yeah. one is which? Yeah.、Um, what motivates you to wake up each morning these days, and、uh, what still keep you up at night?、Um, can I say doing a podcast with Hans? Well, you know, look, I, I feel like the the energy that I see from a lot of our entrepreneurs,、um, where a lot of them are moonshot ideas. You know, that's the business I'm in to try to invest in things that might change the world. Maybe it's one in a billion chance, but and and that gets me up in the morning.、Right. You know, to to know who I'm going to see and hear their ideas. A lot of it is also getting helping them navigate through building the company. But I think. Their passion and energy、um, is 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 really inspiring and kind of feeds, like you said, we said earlier, it keeps us young, and keeps us、um, on the forefront of what's possible.、Yes. And I think as human beings, that's really, you know, that's, that's, that's really liberating. Yeah, and and yes, I think making returns is is part of the scorecarding. Right. But in my case, I feel like、um, benefiting from from our entrepreneurs is has been a real joy. Now, when they run into trouble, that's what keeps, <laughs> that's what keeps me up at night. So、uh, that comes with the territory, yeah, for, for sure. sure, yeah, yeah. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Jerry.、Um, it was great to have you.、Uh, we have known each other for, for several years now, and has been very interesting ride together. So, Absolutely.、Uh, look forward to have more. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening to this episode of 996. By the way, we also produce a weekly email newsletter in English, also called 996, which has a roundup of the week's most important happenings in tech in China. Subscribers have told us it is informative and fun to read. The newsletter also features original content and analysis from Zara and me. Subscribe at 996.ggvc.com. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We have been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs for the last 17 years, from seed to pre-IPO. With $3.8 billion in capital under management across eight funds. GGV invests in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise. GGV has invested in over 200 companies, including Airbnb, Alibaba, Ctrip, Didi, Hellobike, House, Keep, Slack, Square, Toutiao, Wish, Xiaohongshu, YY, and others, with 29 IPOs and 17 unicorns to date. Find out more at ggvc.com. If you have any feedback on this podcast or would like to recommend a guest, please email us at nine nine six at ggvc dot com. This podcast is co-produced by our friend and business partner Kaiser Kuo, the host of the wonderful Seneca Podcast. It covers China's economic, political, and cultural issues. <laughs>